Hey, it's Big Joe for your trusted local independent American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning dealer, Absolute Comfort. Chris Wedekin is the owner, and he tells us why many homeowners are giving up their air conditioners for a high-efficiency heat pump. By removing your air conditioner and replacing it with a heat pump, you are not only saving by getting a higher-efficiency air conditioner, the heat pump works in reverse and saves you money in the wintertime as well. See if a heat pump is the right move for you by going to absolutecomfort.org. Absolute Comfort is your trusted local independent American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning dealer. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. Good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're thrilled you're with us. Hope you're enjoying what turned out to be a beautiful afternoon. I'll tell you what, uh, I saw a forecast that had it raining all day. So uh, the Harley's been sitting in a garage all day and uh, got some work done at the office, headed downtown to do radio. But I hope you're enjoying the weather as I think we unexpectedly had uh, some really nice weather this afternoon. I hope it holds up. I want to give a really... Uh, warm Hoosier welcome to a group of folks who are in, in town right now. And this is a group of folks who are perhaps doing uh, the most important job there is to do in this country. And that is uh, they've taken on the responsibility of, of protecting our kids in schools. Uh, what we're hosting here in Indiana and, you know, here in Indianapolis, we get some of the, the biggest conventions around. I mean, we have proven that we are a fabulous convention city. Uh, downtown, obviously, under Joe Hogsett, has uh, has diminished, I think, in terms of the quality of the experience. Uh, homelessness, homelessness is too high. Uh, crime is too high, although you got a group of law enforcement officers who are fully capable, capable of defending themselves and others. And this is the National Association of School Resource Officers. And uh, as I said, those folks that have taken on the responsibility of uh, keeping our kids in school safe and I, I can't imagine a more important job, and I'm glad we have a group of professionals not only dedicated to that mission, but also uh, continuing to educate themselves, continuing to do things like attend this conference where they're uh, going to different seminars and having learning opportunities and whatnot on how to uh, better coordinate and better do their jobs. And at the end of the day, we're all better for it uh, because our kids are safer for it. I'm actually going to be able to attend just one of the presentations. Uh, the The presenter is a, an expert on the active shooter threat, and he's does done studies uh, both um, focused on schools, but also more broadly looking at active shooters. And he's making a, a presentation tomorrow afternoon, and, and I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be able to go. It's law enforcement only at this conference, uh, but just uh, as his guest, I, I'm going to be able to sit in on that, and I'm really looking forward to that because uh, it's something, as you know, that I'm extremely interested in. Um, I've, I've had indirect involvement, for instance, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, I represented Eli Dickin uh, as his attorney. He was the hero in the Greenwood Park Mall who ended, really famously uh, ended, a mass shooting uh, that had a total duration of 15 seconds from the time the bad guy started shooting. And he unfortunately did take three innocent lives. But he had the intent and the capacity to take uh, many, many, many more lives. He was still carrying over 100 rounds of ammunition when Eli ended that threat, still had the rifle in his hands, 
when Eli uh, shot him the first time. And the total duration of that mass shooting from the time the bad guy started shooting innocents until Eli ended the threat was 15 seconds. And compare that to something like Uvalde, Texas, where you had someone in a school actively killing kids for over an hour while police decided what exactly their strategy should be on ending that threat. And we have all seen the video that's heartbreaking. It's, you'll have a number of different reactions when you see that video, if you haven't already. You'll be frustrated. You'll be angry. You'll be mortified. You'll be sick. And you'll be nauseated. Because as these people are standing around figuring out what the hell to do, kids are dying. Kids are actively texting, saying, he's killing us, help us. And you know what the, the difference there is? And this is something that a lot of people across the country will tell you does not happen. They'll tell you it's a myth. They'll tell you even more broadly the idea of a quote-unquote good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun. They'll say it never happens. It's a myth. I've heard that more times than I can count. I've heard that from the idiots at Moms Demand Action, Shannon Watts. I've heard it from the Bloomberg campaign. I've heard it from the Brady Center. I've heard it from the Gifford Center. I've heard it from politicians left and right who are advocating for gun control. They, they'll tell you it's a myth, that it just doesn't happen. Well, I beg to differ. I've now represented, as their attorney, six different people who have saved innocent lives with deadly force. Six. And that's just right here in central Indiana. Well, they weren't all in central Indiana. I've talked about Kisti Janin, who is still one of my all-time favorite clients, right up there with Eli. Kisti, if you haven't heard the story, and, and this was extensively covered in the news, Kisti has talked about it publicly. I'm not speaking out of school here at all. It was a very publicly covered event, and Kisti testified to it in the General Assembly. With great effect... It's one of the reasons we have a new self-defense immunity law in Indiana. But Kisti was enjoying a typical afternoon on a nice day in Rising Sun, Indiana. Beautiful little town. If you haven't been there, it has a casino. It's in Ohio County, on the river, not far from Cincinnati. And uh, by population, the smallest county in the, in the state. And Kissy's enjoying the afternoon. She had two, has two daughters. Her daughters were home. And her mom is her next-door neighbor, but they're in a very rural area. And her mom called and said, you know, there's something weird going on. There's a, there's a guy in a truck parked across my driveway. He's on the street, but he's blocking my driveway, and he's acting really weird. He's getting out of the truck. He's getting back into the bed of the truck. He's sifting through trash. He's yelling incoherent gibberish as he's doing so. He's frustrated. He's mad. He's like picking up empty cigarette packages and shaking them and looking at them and throwing them aside. And he's looking for something. My personal speculation, it was, it was drugs. He misplaced that last 
ounce of meth or whatever it was he was looking for. Well, that was good speculation as well because later in the day, uh, medical personnel involved confirmed he was on meth and several other drugs. But at any rate, he's acting strangely. Kisty and her mom are talking on the phone. And the mom finally says, we know this is odd enough and he's blocking my drive. I'm going to call the police. Well, there in that area, the closest officer that got the call was actually an off-duty conservation officer. And he was off-duty, he had his son with him. And he said, look, I'll, I'll go check this guy out. And he actually had his son with him, who was a friend of one of Kisty's daughters. So he said, tell you what, I'm going to drop my son off at your house before I go check this guy out. Keep my son safe. So he drops his son off. He drives down. He's driving a, a Jeep, a marked conservation vehicle. Marked as a conservation law enforcement officer. Pulls up behind this guy, flashes his lights, and now the guy's in the cab of the truck, and he starts to move. And he drives down. He's driving along. And I believe the officer at that point got on the loudspeaker and said, pull over. Guy pulls over. He's now literally pulled over in Kisty's yard. As soon as he pulls over, he gets out of the truck. He's a stocky guy. Turns out he was a high school wrestler. The officer gets out of his car, and he's telling the the guy in the truck to get back, back in the truck. Well, he's not listening. He's screaming profanities, and he's walking right up on the officer, and he's going, stop, stop, put your hands on the vehicle. Guy doesn't stop. He walks right up on the officer, tackles him, plants him on his back, and goes for his gun. Now they're having a fight over the weapon. And the officer's not winning that fight. Kisty, her daughter, and the officer's son are watching the struggle for his life that the officer's going through literally in Kisty's front yard. Son is watching it too. And they see they're fighting, and o- fighting over the gun. The gun's out of the holster. And it's coming very close to being pointed at the officer's face. Kisty at that point grabs her gun, runs out there. She's yelling at the guy to stop, stop, get off him, get off him. Bad guy's not listening. Gun's coming around, about to point at the officer's face. Kisty shoots the bad guy. She actually intentionally shot him in the shoulder. I think maybe having seen a movie or two where someone gets shot, she had this image of him flying through the air off of the officer, or at least being knocked off of him to some degree. It didn't have that effect, but it did actually ricochet off a shoulder bone and went through both lungs, killed the bad guy. Officer, when I talked to him, said he heard the shot. He thought it was him dying. He said, I just hope my son didn't see me just die. How compelling is that? So you might wonder why Kisty needed a lawyer. Because she's obviously a hero. Well, what happened is, the, obviously, obviously the officer calls her a hero. She is. She's an amazing hero. The local prosecutor's office called her a hero. The local FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, called her a hero. Everybody called her a hero except just under two years later. I mean, to the day, under two years. One day before the statute of limitation expires, some dirtbag lawyer based out of Cincinnati sues Kisty for millions and millions of dollars, saying that she overreacted. She was just a hysterical female 
there were just a couple of guys tussling in the front yard because that's what guys do. They tussle. No reason to run out there, overreact as a hysterical female, and shoot this poor guy and kill him. It was not reasonable force. It was excessive under the circumstances. As ludicrous, as disgusting as that is, Kisty's now being sued for millions of dollars. And they say, oh, no, not to worry. This happened in your front yard, so you have homeowner's insurance, and we'll take the limits on the homeowner's policy, a mere $300,000, and we'll go away. What happened after that? In that case, we'll get into that. When we come back right now, we're a little past the quarter hour. It's time to take a break. I'll be right back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. So I'm talking about the case of Kisty Jane. That was her name at the time. Her name's Kisty Phillips now. And she got sued. It was the, I said a dirtball lawyer from Cincinnati. Well, he was representing the estate or the personal representatives of the dead bad guy. So that's who's actually suing, but the lawyer filed the lawsuit on their behalf, and I'm sure it was the lawyer who hustled up the case. And so what happens in a situation like that? Well, in this case, and and, and it went from the, from the horrible event of Kisty getting sued, which is she testified in our General Assembly. She testified in both the House and the Senate. The judiciary committees. It was an incredibly traumatic event. She was a single mom at the time. She's saving to put two girls through college, living in her own house, paying all the bills, and she believed absolutely she's going to lose her house, she's going to lose the college fund for her girls, lose her life savings. And of course, the plaintiff's lawyer offers you an out. They go, oh, well, we'll just Take the limits of the insurance policy. But that's the last thing Kisty wanted. Because that to her was an admission that she did something wrong. That she took a human life in a way that wasn't appropriate and justified was the, the suggestion that comes out of a settlement like that. And Kisty didn't want to live with that. At the same time, most insurance policies will say that it's not up to you in a situation like that, if your insurance company wants to settle a lawsuit out from underneath you, then they can do so. Other policies are written a little differently. You have to consent. But a lot of times, if that's the case, if they can settle it, say they can settle it for $100,000 or $200,000, and you say no, and they go, you go to trial, and insurance company gets hit for more than that up to their limits, for instance, you owe the difference under some policies. So there's a lot of pressure on an individual. In this case, what happened is that the Fraternal Order of Police got involved down in Rising Sun because they had the same concern. They didn't want to see this scumbag lawyer and the family of the dead bad guy get rich off a situation that their deceased relative started, that he instigated, that he came very, very close to murdering a police officer, and nobody should make money off of that. So the FOP had a fundraiser on GoFundMe and raised a whole bunch of money, almost six figures. And then the FOP called the NRA in Virginia and said, hey, we want the best self-defense attorney we can find in Indiana because we want to fight this thing and we've got the money to fight it. And I, I was thrilled and honored that the NRA suggested me. 
So Kisty called me and kind of interviewed me over the phone, talked to the FOP guys, and I was hired. And so we went in, and, I, and, and the first time I met Kisty in person, I told her two things. I said, first of all, we're going to win this lawsuit. We're going to get this thing dismissed. It's a POS lawsuit, if you know your acronyms. And these people don't deserve any money, but we're going to do something else. We're going to change the law in Indiana. We're going to change the law in Indiana. We're going to use this case as a momentum for a new law. And you know what? I'm going to sit down and write it. And I did. And then I approached Jim Lucas in the General Assembly as author and, and some other folks as co-authors. Very pro-2A, very pro-self-defense legislators that we're blessed to have here in Indiana. And I told him the story. And by the way, Jim, through this whole process, got to know Kisty as well. And we all became very good friends throughout this process. And I wrote that bill. And it went through the, the process of becoming a formal bill, got introduced. And then we had testimony hearings. And Kisty showed up, man. It's what I always say. It makes a difference when the private citizen... Doesn't just whine from the sidelines. Just, doesn't just talk about how terrible the laws are. Doesn't just talk about how terrible the politicians are. How often do you hear that? How, how often do you hear that on the radio? Oh, the politicians just, they're, they all suck. They're all corrupt. They're all, they all just, they're all bought off by their donors. Oh, they're uh, Republicans, Democrats, they're all the same. Doesn't make any difference. They're all just out to screw you and get rich. Well, here's a suggestion. Write a law. Write a law that you think makes Indiana a better place. Take it to your legislator who represents you in the General Assembly, your representative or your senator, or both. If they don't want to take it up, they don't want to introduce it, find one who will and work with them. Create the best bill you can. Get them to introduce it and then show up, for instance, if and when it gets set for a hearing and testify. Tell the story. Why should this become the law in Indiana? That's what we did. And I'll tell you. When Kisty told her story, not only are being forced into something nobody wants to be forced into, which is to take a human life, as 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 traumatic a situation as there is for a for a normal private citizen who's not expecting to have to do that in the course of a given day, you get up every day, put the badge on, you're trained, and, and you've been taught the mindset. It's still a traumatic event. It's still a horrible event to live through, and you still have to suffer from it, but it's, it can be much more shockingly upsetting and shockingly disrupting to your life when it completely comes out of the blue and you're a private citizen. Well, that's what Kisty went through, and she told her story of having to go through that process and, and, and the decision-making she went through before she pulled that trigger and what the impact on her was. And then to compound it to get sued for millions of dollars. And to say that's why we need our new self-defense immunity law to make sure that BS lawsuits like the one filed against her, first of all, get dismissed early. You don't spend years fighting them. That's why insurance companies a lot of times settle cases. Because they man, I, they say yeah, we we could we could we could potentially spend two, three, four hundred thousand dollars defending this lawsuit, or we could settle it tomorrow for half that, say two hundred thousand. That's a good deal economically. We're going to settle it. Well, what if you can get that case dismissed at the very early stages? 
Well, you don't settle it. You fight it. You get it dismissed. You discourage the next BS lawsuit from being filed. And not only that, we made explicitly clear there is complete self-defense immunity and no liability if someone was lawfully and justifiably using force and self-defense and a presumption arises that you're completely justified and you can use that presumption to get the case dismissed if you were not prosecuted for a crime as a result of your use of force and self-defense or defense of third persons. And get this, once you get the case dismissed or you win it at trial based on the immunity, the other side, in this case the scumbag plaintiff's lawyer's client, the family, has to pay you back all your attorney's fees. There's a mandatory attorney's fees provision. That's what we did. That's what we did. That's what Kisty Phillips did. That's her name today. Then Kisty Janin. That's what she did. She showed up. But to go back to my original point, we'll wrap this topic up and move on. You know what Kisty was? She wasn't a good guy with a gun. She was a good lady with a gun who stopped a bad guy who was about to kill a police officer with a gun. Yes. Yes. You know, to find guy very broadly, a good guy with a gun saved an innocent life, stopped a bad guy with a gun. It happened. And that was that situation. We'll come back and talk just a little bit about Eli Dickin when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Hey, thanks for... Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And uh, I haven't invited callers yet. I always want to do that early in the show. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, want to get involved in the discussion, give us a call, 317-239-9393. Talk a little bit about active shooters right now and self-defense shooting more generally. Partly because, as I mentioned, the National Association of School Resource Officers is in town, and they're here for uh, a training conference. And uh, I get to, to go to one of these presentations tomorrow afternoon. I think it's several days long. I mean, they've been here for a while. So we're, we're proud that they chose Indianapolis, and, and we're glad they're here. Couldn't be a more important group of people, I think, out there in terms of the job that they do. They're protecting our kids every day. So welcome to those folks, and thanks for coming to Indy. We hope you're having a great time. We hope you're learning a lot. But I'm going to a, a presentation as the presenter's guest about active shooters. And again, there are a lot of myths, not just that they never ha uh, happen in terms of a good guy with a gun stopping a mass shooting. They'll tell you it's a myth that a good guy ever does that. The gun control proponents, people who would take away your Second Amendment rights tomorrow if they had the prerogative, will tell you it just never happens. It's a myth. We're just a bunch of redneck wannabe pistol arrows running around with guns. And the idea that we could stop a mass shooting 
is, is a complete fallacy. Well, that's been proven wrong. In fact, uh, Dr. John Lott at the, at the Crime Prevention Research Center has done a lot of research on this, and it's really interesting. He, he says that law enforcement, and the FBI in particular, have dramatically undercounted the number of times that armed citizens have stopped a mass shooting. Because the FBI will say, oh, no, it never happens. It's down in the single digits, low, low single digits in terms of percentages. And Dr. Lott says they're dramatically undercounting that in terms of what they call mass shootings or prevented mass shootings. Because part of the difficulty in measuring such a thing is that a lot of times, the mass shooting didn't happen. So when you only look at, quote-unquote, successful mass shootings, that is, somebody goes somewhere and kills a bunch of innocent people, and you look at the number of those that an armed citizen intervened in successfully, it's almost a non sequitur. By definition, if it's a mass shooting and it meets the... And again, there are different definitions. Some say at least three people shot or four people shot or four people killed. That If that does or doesn't include the shooter, there's all kinds of different definitions. And that's why the numbers of mass shootings vary dramatically depending on who's counting. And, and it's very easy to sway the data to make whatever point you're trying to make. But how do you measure the ones that didn't happen? Or where only one or two people died, so it's not technically a mass shooting, or it wasn't technically an active shooter event, because an armed citizen stopped it from becoming one. And isn't that the best possible outcome? I mean, a similar similar issue. I was at a, a presentation. It was... A political stunt is what it was, and I, I was sort of the token pro-2A person invited, but it was over at the IU Law School. And some IU Law students put this thing on, and they were talking about, you know, preventing gun violence in Indiana. And it was a whole bunch of people who were in there arguing for gun control, and little old me. And and what they did, it was very intentional, is they, they put me on a panel where my only job and the only thing I was allowed to do was simply answer some questions put to me. And I kind of used that opportunity like politicians do, which is I didn't much care what the question was. I was going to say what I came to say. <laughs> and re related it generically to the question, but for the most part, I wanted to say what I wanted to say and, and partly to rebut some of the other ridiculous points I was hearing made. But, but 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 one study that one it was one of the law students who actually organized this thing. She put up this study and this statistical number, and she was so proud of this number. To her, this just ended the debate about whether an armed citizen has any value at all. And she said something like, "Only I forget the number. It was getting low single digits. Only five percent. Pick a number. It was some number similar to that. It was below ten. I want to say in the low single digits. Only five percent." of victims of violent crime were armed. And she presented this as a means of, of arguing how so few people are carrying guns or, or, or use their gun to prevent violent crime from happening. 
And, and I'm sitting in the audience. I started laughing. And I could see her kind of look at me out, out of the corner of her eye. And I kind of, I did a, I did a face, you know, a face palm. And I'm shaking my head. And I leaned over to the guy next to me who, I have no idea why he was there or what his orientation was. He, he didn't particularly react positively to my comment, but I couldn't, I couldn't stifle it. I had to, I had to say it. I looked over the guy and I went, you know, she's talking about victims of violent crime, right? Well, most of us carry guns so we don't become victims of violent crime, so we don't become part of that study. We're not part of the data set. We weren't a victim of a violent crime. That's the point. That's why we carry. You're studying a group of people who were victims and then saying, well, very few of them are carrying a gun. Why don't you use the same data point to say, wow, if more people carried guns, there'd be fewer victims. It's the same data point. And I just, that's the logic. But that's what we hear. Well, what, what else do you hear? You hear, well, an untrained a citizen who's not trained the same as a police officer, not trained the same as the military. If an active shooting starts, they'll just panic. They'll spray bullets in every direction. They'll kill innocents and never hit the bad guy. I've heard that a million times. What happened in the Greenwood Park Mall? Eli Dickin has no formal training. I'm, I'm talking to him a, a day or two after the shooting, and I, I'm asking the same questions a lot of people were curious about. Well, you like, you know, what kind of training have you had? None. Oh, come on, none? His first four shots were from 43 yards away. I know, I lasered it. From the exact location where he started shooting, the exact location of the, where the bad guy was when Eli shot him the first two times. Shot at him four times, hit him twice from 43 yards. No formal training. So, well, my, my granddad taught me how to shoot when I was 10 or 11. I go, yeah, but when you go to the range, are you really, really good? I've never really been to a formal range. Ah. You know what? He rose to the occasion. How many innocent people? Eli shot 10 shots total. Four from 43 yards. Four from about 25 yards. Two from about 10 yards. How many shots total did he miss out of 10? Two. And those were from 43 yards. How many of those struck an innocent an innocent victim? None. When you watch the security tape, and again, it hasn't been released to the public. I was fortunate enough as Eli's lawyer, the Greenwood police, let me see it. Twice Eli paused and allowed screaming passersby to run past his sight picture. He's paused shooting, raised the muzzle of his gun to let people run by before he resumed ending the threat. That's what an untrained person did. Now, could everybody do that? Of course not. Could every police officer, every member of a SWAT team have done that? Don't know. I would never say ever. I never say 100%. But that's what Eli Dickens did. And that's why so many of the anti-gun people just hate talking about that shooting. Because what they say doesn't happen, happen. What they say, the horrible consequences will be, that's what didn't happen.
No innocents killed. Bad guy got shot eight out of ten times. The threat ended. And that total mass shooting from the time he started shooting innocent people to the time Eli ended the threat lasted 15 seconds. Compare that to the school shootings like Uvalde. Compare that to Parkland, Florida, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where there they had an officer who stayed outside. I'll guarantee you that they're talking about that at the conference I mentioned. I'll guarantee you, every one of those people that are at this conference, a threat unfolds, they're running to the threat. They're ending the threat. Well, that's what Eli Dickens did. And that's the lesson we learned from that, whether the people who despise your Second Amendment rights want to talk about it or not. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. And welcome back. We've got a very, very short segment here at the top of the hour, as we sometimes do. Um, I want to go into, after the break, I want to go into what's going on or not going on in Broad Ripple. And uh, if you've heard me talk about this here or uh, on Hammer and Nigel, um, then uh, let me just set the stage. You may have heard part of this before. But, you know, we've, we've had shootings, we've had violence in Broad Ripple for, for far too long. A lot of people have just stopped going to Broderpool because they don't feel safe. Well, here a week or so ago, you had four people shot, like 2 a.m. at roughly uh, 62nd or Broderpool Avenue and Guilford. And uh, three of the people died. And so you had a lot of people concerned about this, as they should be. But you heard a proposal, and this, I think, started with the Broderpool Village Association, but then it was picked up quickly by Mayor Hogsett. And they wanted to turn Broderpool into a, a gun-free zone. And a lot of people said, well, hold on. Uh, how do you turn Broderpool into a gun-free zone in the sense of now prohibiting guns on city streets, on city sidewalks? What if somebody has a license to carry? How do you keep them out? And, and is it legal? Can they do that? Because we have a preemption law here in Indiana that says local governments, like the city of Indianapolis, can't regulate the carrying of firearms. Now, there are certain exceptions to that. But how are they going to get this done? Well, we heard some more detail and some explanation. I'll get more into that when we come back. We'll also talk about new developments because they have, appear to have gone 180 degrees on this proposal. We'll talk about all those things when we come back. We're breaking at the top of the hour. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it, but make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WYBC. We're thrilled you're with us. Hope you're enjoying your afternoon. 
Guys, as I mentioned at the top of the show, weather held out much better than it was supposed to. I saw a forecast said pretty much rain all day. So uh, I left the Harley in the garage and uh, expected uh, for it to be a lot wetter than it's been. So I hope you're enjoying the day. But in the meantime, glad you've tuned in to the Gun Guys show. Um, we'll talk about what's going on in Broderpool or what's not going on in Broderpool. Before I do, though, uh, I, got, I had a question. It was a, a private message on, on Facebook. But somebody said, hey, guy, just curious. You said the FOP in Kisty Janin's case raised uh, almost $100,000. What happened to that money? That is a great question. And uh, uh, let me let me revisit that issue before we uh, get back into Broderpole. Um And if you weren't listening to that part of the show, uh, when I defended uh, Kisty Janin, now Kisty Phillips, who was a, a hero down in Rising Sun, Indiana, saved the life of a police officer during a traffic stop gone bad where he was about to be shot with his own gun. Um, she heroically saved that officer's life with deadly force, but then got sued by the family of the dead bad guy. And the local FOP down there, having had one of their officers saved by Kisty, wasn't real thrilled with the fact she'd been sued. And they started to go fund me, and they raised a whole bunch of money, 90-some thousand dollars. And then Kisty hired me. And they had the, the funds uh, to pay for a lawyer out of that. Well, the, the deal we had all along is that um, you know I was going to bill for my time in defending that lawsuit. And anything that of that money raised that didn't go toward uh, the cost of litigation, including my fees, was going to be returned to the FOP to go to um, the children's charities that the FOP also uh, supported. And and that was about the best possible outcome for that money. And so um, I, we sought about defending the case. And then on a parallel track, we wrote the new self-defense immunity law and we were arguing uh, for it in committee. And at the time it went to committee, the way I wrote the law initially, and this was very much on purpose, was it was retroactive. And it would have given immunity to and had a mandatory award of attorney's fees for those cases that had already been filed before the effective date of the statute, which was going to be the next July in 2019. So it would have covered Kisty's case. And... Uh, after it was argued in committee, and that's how the bill was written at the time, and it obviously got a favorable response from the Judiciary Committee in the House, the plaintiff's lawyers in that case, at very early stage, I mean, the case only went on for uh, six months or so, which is very, very short for a typical lawsuit, they voluntarily dismissed the case after uh, media coverage on the new self-defense immunity law that would require would require them to pay us back our attorney's fees if we got the case dismissed on the basis of this new immunity. And so they've dismissed the case. In fact, uh, Jim Lucas, Representative Jim Lucas, who uh, introduced that bill, uh, put out uh, a social media post. And he said, our new self-defense immunity law has claimed its first victory, and uh, it's not even the law yet. And so we got our case dismissed very, very early. So um, we spent less than a third, is my recollection, of the money raised by the FOP to answer the gentleman's question uh, who sent me the message. Uh, we, set, we spent less than a third of it on the expenses of litigation, and the rest went to uh, the children's charities that the uh, FOP from Rising Sun, Indiana, had uh, had, had already uh, had a history of supporting. So that was a great outcome. And I appreciate that question. Um and yeah, no, I, my fees aren't nearly that high. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a damn good lawyer, but I'm really pretty cheap. Um, well, let's talk about Broderipple. So we mentioned before the break that after 
The most recent set of shootings, including four people that were killed here just barely over a week ago in Broad Ripple, uh, four people shot, three of them died. There was a proposal from the Broad Ripple Village Association, and it was quickly heralded by uh, Mayor Hogsett in Indianapolis, where they're, they're going to turn Broad Ripple into a gun-free zone. And Mayor Hogsett had a presser, and he's all gung-ho for this. And he said, yes, he goes, uh, if this uh, is passed, assuming that's by the city county council, he said, it'll, it'll go into effect this week, meaning the weekend we're in right now. Well, did that happen? No, it didn't. What what was their plan in terms of how to do that legally? Well, I don't know exactly. So you have to speculate a little bit based on the public statements. But here's the, the hurdle they had to get over, and that is that the city of Indianapolis can't just come out and say you can't carry a gun in Broderpool. Now, the individual businesses, the bars, the restaurants, any other business in Broderbrook can say you can't bring a gun in our store. That's their private business, their private property. They can have whatever policy they want. And you see that on some, some businesses. They have big signs up, no guns allowed. They can have that policy if they want. Now, in Indiana, unlike a lot of other states, you don't commit a crime by ignoring that sign. You're just violating their policy. Just like any other policy, if they, they have a sign up that says no masks, no service, and you walk in with no mask on, they can go, hey, yo, we have a mask policy. You have to leave if you don't put a mask on. If you leave, no harm, no foul. If you refuse, now you're trespassing. You can go to jail for trespass. Same with no shirt, no shoes, no service. Same deal. You walk in there with no shoes on, then go, hey, yo, got to have shoes on to come in here. Oh, I'm sorry, you leave. No harm, no foul. Same with a gun. Walk in, you got a gun. Now, most of us carry concealed. They're not going to know you have a gun. But let's say they see the outline under your shirt. Let's say you're open carrying, whatever. You walk in, hey, yo, you can't have a gun in here. You got to leave. You got to leave. And if you don't, you're trespassing. That's how it works. But that's for private business. Can the city of Indianapolis say you can't carry a gun on the city streets and on the sidewalks in Broderpool? Well, the the bottom line is our Indiana Preemption Act says local governments like the city of Indianapolis can't regulate firearms. And in particular, they can't regulate the carrying or possession of firearms. It's illegal. And if they try, they can be sued. I know I've filed a number of these lawsuits all across the state. And it's got teeth because your measure of damage is if you file one of these lawsuits because the local government is regulating firearms when the Preemption Act says they can't, you can recover essentially four times your attorney's fees as liquidated damages, we call it. Because the statute says you can recover three times your attorney's fees as damages and your attorney's fees. 4X, when you add it all up. And that can add up really quickly. You multiply it times four, it can be a big old price tag if a local government wants to violate the Preemption Act. But there are 13 exceptions to the Preemption Act, which sounds like a lot, but really they're very limited. One of them is, and we're pretty sure this is what they were going to rely on in Broad Ripple, is that if a private organizer or promoter of an event leases property from a political subdivision, that's a local unit of government. You have the state as one unit of government, and then the state's divided it up into all these other little local units of government, counties and towns and cities and townships. 
and airport authorities and housing authorities and all these other little units of government below the state level. Just local government. Local governments can't regulate firearms. There are certain exceptions. Among the 13 exceptions is one we call the Jimmy Ursay exception. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. Because the owner of the Colts came out while we were arguing over the Preemption Act in the General Assembly and said, hey, this would prohibit the city from saying you can't bring a gun into property owned by the city, and the city owns a stadium. Then it was the RCA Dome, now Lucas Oil Stadium. And we don't really want guns at Colts games. So they they built an exception into the Preemption Act that says the organizer or promoter of an event like the Colts that leases property from a local unit of government like the city of Indianapolis or the Capital Improvement Board, more specifically, that owns the stadium, another unit of government, where that private organizer or promoter of an event leases that property in order to stage that event, they can prohibit firearms and the city can help them enforce that. Now, it's still not a crime. If you carry a gun into Lucas Oil Stadium for a Colts game, you don't go to prison. You just get kicked out. Now, they may void your ticket. They may void your season tickets. I don't know. I had season tickets for 30-some years. I'm sure that was in the fine print somewhere. You would think I would go figure that out. But you don't go to prison. They can't make it a crime because it's not otherwise a crime. I have personally carried a gun into Lucas Oil Stadium. When? During five years ago, the NRA annual meeting. When? The NRA allowed you to carry a gun at most of the events. As long as the presidential candidates weren't speaking, you could carry a gun at the annual meeting. So it's not a crime to carry a gun there, but they can prohibit it through the process where a private organizer or promoter of an event leases property from the city. So how does that apply to Broderpool? I'll explain that and then give you an update on where we are now. Uh, when we come back, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. So, Broad Ripple, how does the city, in partnership with the Broad Ripple Village Association, use this exception, which we call the Jimmy Ursay exception, because uh, I think they were thinking about Colts games and Pacer games, when they build it into the statute, how do they use that to make Broderpool a gun-free zone? Well, theoretically, and again, this is sort of reading between the lines to figure out what it is they're going to do, but it seems to me that the plan probably was to block off some significant section of Broderpool. And I'm thinking 62nd Street or Broderpool Avenue from college to Guilford or Westfield or some subset of that, but block it off. The logistical problem they have is you have to block off all the side streets as well and either have metal detectors at all of them or have some of them just not passable, just fenced off. So you have limited points of entry, then you have metal detectors and armed security, probably IMPD officers, at each of those points. 
and you make everybody coming into that area go through a metal detector. Well, that's how you do it logistically. How do you do it legally? Well, theoretically, and they were just talking about this, by the way, every Friday and Saturday night, so it's not during the week. At least that was the proposal I saw. So every Friday and Saturday night, they would what? They'd, they'd, they'd close it off, put up their metal detectors, and call it Friday night in Broderpool. It's an event. And lease all the public space, streets, sidewalks owned by the city, to the village association or some other private promoter of the an event to say, aha, it would have to be a private promoter, and say, aha, we now have a promoter or organizer of an event that's leasing property from the city. They can make it a gun-free zone. Now, the, the breakdown in that is, is just calling a typical Friday night in Broderpool an event. I mean, is that like a Colts game or a Pacer game? Of course not. They're using that as a pretext to just not allow anyone, including law-abiding citizens, including people with a license to carry or people who that are, that are legally authorized and capable of carrying under constitutional carry, just prevent them from exercising their Second Amendment rights, exactly what the preemption statute was designed to prevent. When there's no event going on, it's just business as usual in Broderpool, except we're fencing it off and making it look and feel like a prison. So to the extent it was a pretext all along and it wasn't truly an event, they were just trying to shoehorn themselves into this exception in the preemption statute, they were looking at a potential lawsuit. They were looking at a potential lawsuit by my organization, the 2A Project. We'd file that. Now, of course, it's, it depends on what it is they come up with. If it really is a legitimate event scheduled on some Friday or Saturday, and it looks like they're really following not only the letter but the spirit of the preemption law, then okay. They figured it out. They got a pass. May look at amending the statute, but in the meantime, all right. So it depends on what it is. But if it's just typical Friday or Saturday night in Broderpool, you're just shoehorning yourself into this exception. As I said, nah, sorry, that doesn't fly. This is what the preemption statute specifically designed to prevent. I've got a Second Amendment right to carry. The city of Indianapolis can't just strip me of that, absent very limited circumstances. But now it appears they've done a 180. And if not a 180, something pretty close to that. Because what we just heard Wednesday night is the Village Association, they got back together, and they now said what they're doing, and they did not rule out. They didn't mention one way or the other the whole gun-free zone business. So maybe that's still on the table, maybe it's not. But it definitely took a step backward, because what they announced in order to make things safer in Broderpool is the bars are all now voluntarily. They voted on this, and it was unanimous, apparently. The bars in Broderpool are all going to close at 1 p.m., 1 a.m., excuse me. <laughs> Producer Carl goes, 1 p.m.? Guy, can't, you can't have a late lunch in Broderpool. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. You saved me from my stupidity there. 1 a.m. 
They're all going to close at 1 a.m. And get this. They said they're going to they're going to stop the use of private promoters to organize events that may a- attract an unsavory crowd. They said they're going to they're going to they're going to push back on, they're going to cut back on. They're going to diminish the use of private promoters. What's that mean? That's the exact opposite of the direction they need to go in order to legally get around the preemption statute to declare a gun-free zone. That tells me, and again, I'm just reading tea leaves here. This is speculation. And they they could pivot again and make me look like an idiot for even saying this. And I fully acknowledge that's not only possible, but likely. But what that appears to me to be is that they've completely backed up on making it a gun-free zone. I would like to think, because they saw the likelihood of getting sued under the preemption statute and the likelihood of losing. But for whatever reason, by saying that, yeah, okay, they're going to close early, that makes sense to me. I get it. Look, no no business wants to give up possible you know, opportunity to make money, to have to generate revenue, and they're cutting off two hours of business. Okay. They're cut down costs as well. And, you know, I'm sure diminish the 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 bad guys coming into Broad Ripple to start trouble to the extent the businesses simply are open. There's nothing going on. There's nobody there to prey upon. And you're gonna get people off the streets that much earlier. That's gotta help. But the fact they're going to back up on the use of private promoters tells me, because that's what they have to have to rely on that particular exception, looks like they've changed their mind on gun-free zone. I don't know. We'll have to see how that plays out. That's how it's looking to me. Got a question or a comment? Give us a call, 317-239-9393. I don't think we've had a single caller. We may set a record. For the Gun Guy Show, uh, man, the last couple, three weeks, we've had a ton of callers. But, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm on more of a rant than having a general discussion, we don't get a lot of callers because I'm just ranting and people are just listening to me rant. <laughs> but give us a call if you want to join the discussion. 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. And welcome. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Back, I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And I'll say, Carl, Carl and I were, were laughing. Uh, I said, wow, we haven't had a caller yet. And the phone lines like blew up. Um, some folks, I think, didn't want to uh, to sit on hold for a while because we literally uh, every phone line lit up as soon as I said that. Um, so some some folks uh, didn't hang on, but several of you did. Uh, Carl sent me a note. Caller who couldn't hold says you cannot bring guns onto federal property like VA. Uh, yeah, I know. 
I teach that class. I'm, I'm not sure why someone called and just offered that random point of law. I, yeah, I know that. I, I Like I said, I teach that class. And that's true. If it's federal property, like a VA hospital, you can't carry guns there. Um, but I'm not sure why that random bit of information <laughs> someone felt compelled to call and share. Uh, maybe I'm missing something. In the meantime, let's go to the phone lines. Several people have called. And uh, Larry, Larry, you got a question for us? Uh, yeah. Back in the 80s, I used to, I had what was called a hunting and target permit that I got when I was 16. Oh, handgun license. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Have they done away with that? My son recently turned 16, and I would, since he enjoys shooting and stuff and has his license now, I thought I can get him this. He can go to the range. I can't find anything on it. You know, Larry, I'll be honest. I I I haven't applied for my license in so long. I mean, I've had a lifetime pretty pretty much since they've had lifetimes. I uh I don't think I don't think that's an option anymore because nobody ever got it. Um it used to be you could apply for a four year and then that went to a five year and that was less money than the lifetime permit. So people just chose between four year and then five year or lifetime because the lifetime cost you an extra 75 bucks so it was up up for like a, to 125 total fees paid to local uh, your local authorities and, and plus the state for the lifetime so people, some people got the four year and then five uh, year just because it was cheaper but that was the only choice I remember specifically you're right there was a, a, a hunting and target uh, practice permit but I, I still don't think anybody ever got it because um, the the requirements were the same. And uh, and 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 specifically more recently because now the lifetime's free, so in my mind, why get them more limited when it might be a situation like yours with your son? You 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 don't want him carrying it all the time. You just want to be able to take him to the range and back, um, and and it, so it's your choice to more limit him on that. But you could still have that conversation with him and say, you know, that's still your preference. That's the only time he carries. Um, if if that's the case, but um, but no, I haven't heard of that actually being an option. When you go to the website, if anybody knows differently, by the way, if you uh, if you uh, have applied for your license more recently, or you know, any of my friends at the state police, like Kim Cross uh, or Lieutenant Pete Wood, if you're listening, uh, give me a call three one seven two three nine ninety three ninety three, so I can more. Uh, I can offer a more informed answer to Larry's question, but I don't think that's an option anymore. I think you just choose five-year or lifetime, and that's it. Uh, and those are the options, again, because they're both free. In fact, nobody's getting a five-year because the lifetime's free. So what the heck? Everybody's applying for the same thing. I wouldn't be too surprised to see the five-year go away, except the five-year was designed with this in mind. That is, if it's at least a five-year license and it meets certain requirements, which our license all does, The ATF can, if it so chooses, um, allow your state to be what they call a POC, point of contact, for firearm purchases and say, okay, if you have that license, and in this case would be our five-year, then if the ATF authorized this, which they have not done, so don't get too excited. In fact, they haven't made any new state a POC anytime recently. Um, so I think certainly under uh, Obama and then uh, now under Biden, 
I, I can't see this ATF uh, doing much of this, but uh, I can't see him doing it at all. Um, but if they wanted to, ATF could make Indiana the point of contact. So if you had a five-year license, you could go into a gun store, just show your license, and walk out with your gun and not have to go through the next check. That's why the five-year became a five-year and why it was designed the way it was. But it requires the federal government to buy in, which they have not done. Um, so that's why we even still have the five-year, even though I'm sure very, very few people get it. If we ever became a POC, that, that I'm sure would have to be under some future Republican uh, administration in Washington. So yes, party does matter, especially when it comes to gun control, Second Amendment issues. It matters to a huge degree. Um, but if that ever happens, a lot of people, I'm sure, will rush out and get their five-year because then um, you uh, you just show your license and walk out with your gun and don't have to go through the next check. Let's go back to the phone lines. We've got Steve. Steve, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Thank you. Sure. What you got? Hey, Hero. Thank you for the advice on getting my weapon back from my MPD. Oh, good. It took a while, but I got it back. Good. And the comment on Broad Ripple, bars closing earlier and everything. Yeah. How's that going to stop the delinquents, the whoever you want to call them, from starting trouble earlier now. <laughs> yeah, well, fair question, Steve. And, <laughs> and, and it won't. Um, but I guess the idea is if if you've got a, uh, let, let's say let's say the witching hour, whatever you want to call it, starts at midnight, um, where, you know, the, the, the bad people are out doing whatever they're doing and they decide to go to Broad Ripple and, and cause problems. If they've got a one-hour window or however you want to define it, uh, then, you know, less bad things are going to happen than if they've got a four-hour window. That's just the idea. So, yeah, not, nothing, nothing's going to prevent bad guys. If, they, if they've got a particular agenda to show up in Broad Ripple and do bad things uh, while the bars are still open, yeah, they'll just start earlier, I suppose. But I think sometimes um, just because of the very, very late hours, people have had that much more time to drink uh, or, or whatever recreational activities they're involved in, um, more time for fights to simmer. Uh, again, more, I'm sure, uh, alcohol and, and, and to the degree it applies, I'm sure some drugs, uh, the more those have uh, time to have that much more of an effect, the later on into the evening, the worse things get. Um, so I, I think it is reasonable to think that it'll have some positive effect. But sure, if some bad guy's got a particular agenda, uh, they'll just adjust their schedule accordingly. So I, I think it's a valid point. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. We've got Tom. Tom, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, so I got a little bit of a problem. Uh, my father died a couple years ago, um, and he had a small collection of guns. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet, two tours, uh-huh. Purple Heart, all that. Awesome. And he and uh, he liked to buy um, ARs and uh, got an AK Mac 90 um, uh rifle okay semi-automatics so i know he bought the the ar one of the ars from like rural king uh in a in a 45 uh 1911 he liked to buy stuff that looked like military stuff kind of a uh, nostalgia thing for him sure but anyway one ar he said he bought just bought randomly off some guy off the street and then there was a, a revolver that he bought off a friend. Which, and so my question is, and I've got friends that are police officers that, that I've asked this question, and I've never been able to get a straight answer. Is there a way that I can check to make sure I don't have stolen property that's 
an inheritance uh, without getting myself in trouble. Oh, yeah, you got a stolen gun and then run me off to the jail for having a stolen firearm. I mean, I'm not saying they are, but I don't know where he got this uh, particular AR. And I'm not into ARs and stuff, so they're just in a gun safe. Uh, and, and, and I'm just keeping them because, uh, you know, it's just it, they were my dad's. But, um, you know, if, if, if there was a problem, I would turn them in. But I don't know how to go through that. There's got to be some sort of mechanism for that. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation, Tom, for a private citizen to be in because we don't have access to the stolen gun database that law enforcement does. Now, I know some folks who have friends in law enforcement uh, who will run it for them just as a personal favor, although I'm sure there are limitations on access to those databases. Like it has to be for some, quote-unquote, legitimate uh, law enforcement purposes. Um, the, uh, the, the, there is a website out there, and this is one of those garbage-in, garbage-out situations, so it, it totally depends on people entering guns into the database. But if you go to hotguns.com, and I believe guns is spelled with a Z, so G-U-N-Z, hotguns.com, um, that is a, a, a database designed for private citizens to be able to search by serial number for uh, whether a gun is stolen or not. And again, now, if somebody has a gun stolen and never bothers it to enter it in the database, then you're not going to find it. So that's why I say garbage in, garbage out. But, um, but that's one option that you have. Now, one thing that, that I need to pursue is that I have gotten different answers from my friends who are FFLs. Some say when they take a gun in, say, in trade, that um, they have the ability uh, to check to see if it's stolen or not. Others I've talked to said, no, no, we don't. So I don't know if that's because some of them just have an in with law enforcement and they have an agency somewhere that's willing to run that through the actual stolen gun databases that law enforcement keeps. But, but it's something we ought to look at. Because it seems to me that that law enforcement should want private citizens to be able to run that check, because the only reason you're checking is because you're trying to stray, stay on the right side of the law. You're trying to do the right thing. Well, why wouldn't law enforcement want to help us do that? In other words, what what incentive does law enforcement have to keep that private for law enforcement only when it seems to me there'd be a legitimate purpose in helping private citizens do the right thing and identify if a gun's stolen or not. So um, so that's something I think we ought to look at going forward. But uh, in the meantime, I know a lot of people who are FFLs, uh, you know, federal firearms licensees that own gun stores, um, are listening to the show. If there's a way for an FFL to do that, um, you know, do you have that access? Because I've gotten conflicting answers to that question, and I would love to run that down uh, because, Tom, it's a completely legitimate question and something we ought to have a more definitive answer for. So I appreciate your call, and stay tuned. We may get uh, more information on that. I'll tell you, we're a little past the three-quarter hour. We're taking a break. We have more people on hold. We'll go back to the phone lines when we come back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
And welcome back for the last segment of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. I've got a couple of callers that want to talk about Broderpool. Let's uh, bring in Keith. Keith, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Hey, glad to talk to you again. Sure, you too. Hey, uh, I was listening to uh, Hammer and Nigel earlier this week, and they were interviewing somebody who's a multi-owner of bars down there. And uh, In, in, right. in Broderpool? Yeah, uh-huh. and he said, and he said that most of the bars down there wand everybody for weapons and don't allow them in without weapons. So, I guess <laughs> be a devil's advocate. If you're down there with a weapon, you're not going to a bar. What are you doing? Yeah, uh, fair enough. Um, but I, I fully believe, Keith. Tell me if you disagree with this. I think, I think a business owner ought to be able to decide whether they allow firearms or not. Right. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to argue that a bit. No. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thing, and, and, and I think you asked uh, producer Carl a question, uh, which is yeah. have, have they found the, the shooters of uh, the, uh, the, the people, you know, of the four people shot, three of whom died here um, just over a week ago. And as far as I know, uh, they haven't identified those folks. And, you know, this is what, what always happens is is when when a when a horrific crime happens invariably liberals and 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 i've seen some republicans or conservatives um at least tempted to do this if not engaged in doing it too so i don't know that it's just liberals but certainly liberals invariably when something bad happens whether it's a school shooting or some other uh, mass shooting or in this case, you know, a, a horrible crime, four people shot, three dead in Broderpool, is liberals want to punish everybody who didn't do it. I mean, that, that happens over and over and over again. So here, you know, I'm a law-abiding citizen. In my case, I'm a professional firearms instructor. I've had thousands of hours of instruction. I've taught tens of thousands of hours of instruction. And I would be prevented from carrying a gun in Broderpool on a city street so that I have the capacity to defend myself and my family if this no gun is gun free zone business goes forward. That's completely silly. Why punish me? How about finding the bad guys? How about keeping violent bad guys in prison and not just cranking them through this revolving door criminal justice system? Quickly, I'll tell you what, we're running right out of time, but Jay, uh, you've been on hold for a while, buddy. I didn't want to just leave you hanging. So quickly, what do you got? Do you want got a comment about Broderpool, too? Yeah, yeah guy. Uh, thanks for picking up. We'll go quick here. Hey, I've been going in and out for years with my wife. I don't even feel comfortable in there, there anymore, and I've been around 60 years, grew up here. In Broad Ripple, they want to. Jay, I'm sorry, brother. We are right out of time, buddy. And we hope you enjoyed this week's show. We hope you come back next week. 